Okay. Hello, everybody. How's it going? This is Azrin, the language nerd here, and today we are joined with a guest, who is Sydney. How's it going, Sydney? Hi. Uh, it's going great. Weather here is awesome. It's finally warmed up here in Japan, so I'm thankful for that. Very cool. Um, for those of you listening here today, I wanted to start doing some different types of episodes, a little bit different than what I would typically do, where I bring on some guests and we talk about language learning related things, but also start talking a little bit more about culture. So Sydney, for example, I found her on Instagram. I was going through different hashtags and I found her account because she lives in Japan. And I thought, oh, that'd be really cool. Let me bring her on. And we can talk about her experiences living in Japan as a foreigner, talk about her experience learning Japanese, and she speaks it. From what I can tell, we'll get into it a bit further later, but it seems like you speak it reasonably well, at least if you're working somewhere or rather volunteering somewhere that, you know, you need to know the language for. Um, we can even talk a little bit about your Cantonese. That'll be fun. And so maybe a good place to start would be where are you from originally? And then where did you, where did you grow up? So I am originally from Tampa, Florida. Uh, I lived about an hour and a half from Disney World, which means that I am super spoiled because we have a gigantic international community there and just, you know, see tourists from all over the world. Uh, so I spent the first like 20 years of my life there. And then I moved to Atlanta, Georgia for college. And that's where my family lives now. So I'm a Southerner. <laughs> and you are not in... Uh, Atlanta at the moment, are you? No, I currently live in what we call the Inaka, which is the Japanese word for the countryside. Also, basically anywhere in Japan that is not Tokyo or Kyoto. Uh, and my city is called Komatsu, which you might be familiar with from the Komatsu Construction Company, but basically no one is. So <laughs> that is what we have here is giant <laughs> machinery. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And how long have you been there? I actually only arrived this March. So I've only been living here about three months. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. And so was that your, so is this your first time in Japan? No. So this is actually my third time in Japan. Uh, the first time I came with my family just for a, like a vacation and fell in love with the country. So after that, I had an internship and I was living in Tokyo over a summer. And then this is my first time sort of living um, just kind of regular daily life and having a normal full-time job and not going around sightseeing, so. Right, so how long will you, will you be there this time around? Hopefully permanently. Um, I'm planning on just relocating here and staying. So this is, has been my kind of door to the country. Very cool. Very, very cool. So tell us, what is it like living in Japan? I mean, maybe you can even talk about your trips, maybe your first time there. What was it like? You know, what is it like now that you're more familiar with the, with the culture? Give people an idea of what it's like to be in Japan when you are not from Japan. So I have to be honest. Uh, I was not super into Japan before physically coming to Japan for the first time. I was very much more into Chinese culture. I had studied in Hong Kong and lived with a family in Shanghai. 
but I remember touching down on the ground at Haneda Airport in Tokyo on the first time and just just something about the quality of the air and the quality of the people and the way that they talk to each other I was sort of moved by it um, and so I decided oh my gosh this is the place that I need to be so I always tell people you've seen Japan in anime you've seen Japan in photographs but the actual experience of physically being on the ground here is totally different and way better than any picture you've ever seen. <laughs> I have to say that I'm still not disillusioned with that. Um, I still love living here, but it also is, it's just regular life. The people that live in Japan are just regular people. They're not, not everyone is a geisha or a ninja or a Dragon Ball Z character, right? Uh, People have regular jobs and go to work the same way that they do in America or anywhere else in the world. And I think that's also really nice. What would you say is, what would you say is the, how would I phrase this? What's different about the people compared to back in Japan compared to back home? Because it sounds like they're, it feels very different hanging out with them, speaking with them, being with them. So I think, well, I'll give you an example. Um, so I teach English now in a public elementary and middle school. And yesterday we got to go see a performance by our first graders. So these are our six-year-olds. Um, and they gave a, just a very brief performance in Japanese. And at the end, their teacher asked them to reflect on the experience. And in Japanese, each student would stand up politely bow and put their arms at their side. And then they would say in Japanese something to the effect of group B tried really hard. I was very happy to see that. Or Kumiko's performance today was amazing. She used such a great voice and had lots of confidence. I want to be like that. And just immediately were able to come up with kind of an appreciation for the things that had happened to them. Even the students that struggled, they would stand up and say, I'm glad that I got the chance to practice and now I need to practice more. And I think that they start that so early um, that there's just a, a lot of mindfulness in the community as a whole. We talk about mindfulness now with maybe people like Marie Kondo and it's gotten to be kind of a popular, maybe a buzzword. Uh, but to see how that permeates the Japanese lifestyle and a lot of parts of Japanese philosophy and how they really just spread throughout a community uh, very naturally, I think is quite different from what we have, for example, in America, where it is encouraged that you give your own opinion and it's encouraged that you are reflective. But I think we tend to be a lot more inward facing in the States, um, at least in my experience. And we tend to reflect on our own experiences and our own accomplishments and failures. Whereas here, we talk about it being kind of a um, more collectivist philosophy and a more collectivist type of culture. And you can really see how that changes the way that people interact with each other. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, my uh, I have a friend who uh, when we I met her when I was in uh, in Beijing because I studied in both mainland China as well as in Taiwan. I was studying Mandarin, and so I have a friend that I that I met there. We were studying together, and then she made a similar comment about a lot of Chinese people in that way. So she would I can't remember exactly what the story like exactly what had happened, but she'd been traveling with a group of Chinese people, and it was, it was something with the blow dryer. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something about blow drying hair. But the punchline of the story, I wish I could remember all the details because it's exactly, it's very similar to what you're saying. But the punchline of the story was something to the effect of there was a much more collective viewpoint on, I kind of sound so silly to say, on blow drying your hair. I think it was something like you're not supposed to blow dry your hair at night or something to that effect. And then, and then, the reason that people gave is like, oh, no, 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 we just don't do that. Like, this is not what we, like, uh, that group, like, it was almost like the group, there's a group decision around something quite small. And my friend thought it's quite odd because in her mind, she thought it was, she thought it was, well, I mean, you don't have to blow dry your hair at nighttime. I don't know if that's what it was, but let's say that's what it was. You don't have to blow dry it at nighttime, but I can blow dry it at night, nighttime. Or, oh, you can go, another example would be something like, you can go do X, Y, Z activity, but I don't necessarily have to go with you. You're allowed to go and we can still be in the same group. And whereas the group she was with was much more like, no, 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 we're traveling together. So we do everything together and we're much more, and they're paying attention to the needs of the group. And that's how they're making the decisions. Whereas my friend's mentality going in wasn't that. It was much more, hey, we're traveling together, but sometimes you might do things that I don't do. Sometimes I may do things that you don't want to do. And whether it's like a travel activity or something silly like a hair dryer, but, but, and that was her experience. So are you saying in Japan, based on your experience, it's, it's more like what I described in China? Yes, it's pretty similar to that actually. So another good example is that in our office, teachers eat kyushoku, which is just the term for school lunch. Uh, and in Japan, we have a hierarchy kind of, you know, obviously you have your principal, your vice principals, your head teachers, your assistant teachers, and then us language teachers, like specifically the foreigners that come in to teach language, we're sort of at the bottom. Um, and so that gives us some weird privileges. Like there are meetings that everybody knows about and goes to except for us. And we like can't bother the other teachers during that. Or with Kyushoku, it's sort of impolite if we take the first lunch. Uh, we wait for at least the principal and the vice principals to get their lunch and then we can eat because we're part-timers and it's not as serious. So if we eat early, it's okay, but the head people have to. But all the other teachers, they sort of eat in a pecking order, which is really interesting to watch and a little bit stressful. So yeah, people are very aware of what others are doing at any given point in time and try to be respectful of that. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of a country that you would seemingly think has no connection to Japan and probably doesn't. I don't know the history of it. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I, I've spent a fair amount of time in France and when I was in France, every time I've been in France, one thing I've, I've noticed is they are, it's not that there's a pecking order, 
but it's that there are some social rules and it's more important that you that you follow those social rules whereas in Canada we have social rules too of course but sometimes the consequences of breaking a social rule are not quite as severe so I'll give you an example um when I was in when I was in France I remember I got in pretty big trouble because in the morning times I wouldn't and not just the morning times actually with various people I wouldn't say when I saw them hey how are you did you sleep well or hey how are you how's your day oh good oh I'm doing well I didn't do it in a proper hell I didn't give my full attention to it I might be like oh hey or like oh hi or just but I wasn't doing it the right way and so I I got in some I was a teenager at this point so I my mom was actually called by the family I was staying with like hey we got a big concern my mom was like oh what's going on like what's he what's wrong and they told her and my mom thought it's quite curious like oh hmm. I mean I could see why that would be slightly rude I do understand but oh wow that requires a phone call home and so I have, I have many examples of that sort of thing where there's there's social I think social norms is probably the right word for it. the social norms and there's certain social norms where it's it's much more you really have to it, it's there's more dire consequences if you don't follow them. It sounds very similar. It sounds like what you're saying is something like that. Yeah, it's pretty similar. And actually the same saying good morning, that exists too. Every morning I have to make sure that when I pass someone that I haven't seen for the day, that I otsukare-sama desu them, or like if it's kind of before lunchtime, ohayou gozaimasu. Because if I don't, it looks like you know, I'm sort of ignoring them or I'm too busy to acknowledge that they are also working and, and having a, a day and doing their duties. So yes, we actually have like exactly the same thing. The problem with that is sometimes I can't remember if I've already seen somebody. So I end up double greeting them and it's like- Yeah, and you can't do that, right? I mean, they don't get mad about it, but they're just kind of like, okay, I already saw you today, but hello again. And I'm like, oh, Oh no, I already saw that person. Oh well, oops, it's fine. France is the same. So same thing, like if you see someone, you say hello, like you're not, I mean, you could say it again. I'm not going to get mad at you if you say it again, but it's not, like here, if, and I'm assuming America is the same as Canada. I'm in Canada. Um, I'm assuming the same if I saw you in like at work and I said, oh hey, you said, oh hey, how's it going? Good, okay, that'll be it. And then I saw you at like lunch and you sat down and you're like, oh hey, I could ask you, how's it going again? Like, oh hey, how's it going? And like, I could literally say that again. And you'd be like, oh, hey, good. Like, no problem. Hmm. Right? Fascinating. Yeah. What other, have you noticed any other cultural differences? There's tons. You'd have to ask me a more specific question. <laughs> okay, let's say, well, yeah, actually, I've heard that about Japan and India specifically, the two countries where when people go there, it's a different planet. So maybe tell me what's, what's, either for you or maybe other foreigners you know, what are, what are some like really big things that shock people that they didn't expect? Oh, that's hard. Um, I think, and it's a bit maybe trite to say, but I think a lot of people really do come and are shocked that Japan is not an anime. Um, I think, there is a problem and I didn't really experience this so much I think because I wasn't super into the pop culture things uh but I think a lot of people do go through a lot of 
culture shock when they realize that it's not it's not a movie. Um, and I say that meaning that there are mean people, there are nice people, there are. It's not super convenient to get everywhere like it looks like in the movie. Um, it's actually kind of a gigantic pain to use the train systems. My town doesn't even have a train system. Um, the food I know a lot of people struggle with. Uh, I think really just the level of politeness, though, is probably the most difficult thing. Uh, doing things that, like putting your hands in your pockets or leaning against a desk things that maybe wouldn't really be a big deal anywhere else are quite a big deal here. Talking on the train is really rude. You really cannot have a conversation with your friend while you're commuting. Like it's just, it's simply not done. Um, another big thing that I've gotten in trouble with a couple of times is walking and eating or walking and sipping a coffee. We don't do that here. You stand outside the convenience store and finish your coffee and throw it away. There is no wandering around with the Starbucks cup. Um, so little things like that, I think, stand out. Uh, the fact that there are no trash cans, you carry your trash around everywhere. That's also sort of, I think, a thing that people are surprised about. Lots of little things. I think you got that right. Culture shock is about the little things, I think. I've never thought of it like that, but I think that's that's exactly right. It's It's not... I mean, there are big things that can happen. There are some big... Like, for example, and uh, you said you're in China. Um, you know, I went, I was in there, I was there too. So immediately one of the things that shocked me when I landed the first time I ever went was the pollution, like immediate, like that's like a big thing that's different. That's not like a minor little thing, but I think you're right in saying that, at least in my experiences, um, when I've been to different places, it's not, most of the culture shocks will be something small. You would have never even thought would be something that would shock you. Like showers, do you find, so actually before we get to showers, where have you traveled apart from China and Japan? So as an adult, I have only traveled through China and Japan, but as a child, my grandparents worked in sort of an international capacity. And so it was very important for them that as children, we were exposed to lots of different people and places. So we spent a couple weeks in Denali as when I was a kid. So that's up in Alaska, but very specifically like the native Inuit, maybe not Inuit, but the native population area. Um, I've been to Paris and London, Mexico. I think that's it. So, and then uh, Shanghai and Hong Kong, and I live here in Japan. So maybe this is a weird question, but I have to ask, am I the only one since you've, you've, you've been to a fair number of countries, am I the only one that has difficulty with showers? Like, I feel like whenever I go places, I can't figure out every, like I've been to some places where the hot water is on the shower head. I've been to places where you have to go turn it on and like, this is switch, you turn it on over there and that turns the hot water on. I've been to some places where it's solar powered. So you have no hot water in the morning. It's only in the afternoon. I've been to places where I can't figure out what tap turns the hot water on and off. I've been to places in when I was in France, like the shower head. Okay, I was taking lukewarm showers for like a month or maybe more. And then I made a, a hand, like an offhand comment about how they don't have hot water. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I was like, you don't have hot water. I would turn the heat thing to the maximum and be like lukewarm. And they're like, 
you see that red button? I was like, yeah, they've got the safety latch. You don't burn yourself. If you just push it and, and like push the thing in, then it turns more. I was like, what? Oh my God. You guys have had hot water this whole time? They're like, yeah. I was like, oh my God. Am I the only one that has had bathroom, like shower issues? Well, I can't say that I've had shower issues, um, but in terms of the water and plumbing situations in many countries, just places in general, so I have a reputation within my family that I have been locked in a bathroom in every country slash city I have ever been to. I don't know how this happens. It's just a thing. So there's that. Uh, I think also, uh, and it didn't come up in Europe um, or in Denali, but in Asia, we have Western style toilets and then we have Eastern style toilets. And I remember being in Shanghai for the first time, 18 year old, and there was no toilet paper and no soap and my toilet in a relatively urban area with that is nice is a little porcelain hole in the ground. Um, and so that was really surprising. Uh, yeah, I, they don't bother me at all now. I actually prefer the Eastern style toilets, if I'm being perfectly honest. But the fact that places don't always have soap, I think was really surprising to me. Um, and that continues to surprise me. But showers, no, no, um, I can usually figure out the hot water situation. Okay, maybe it's just me then. <laughs> Nice. Okay, well, let's change gears a bit. Let's switch over to the more on the language side of things. So you speak English, obviously. You speak Japanese. Do you speak anything else? So I took French for seven years in school. I used to be like conversationally fluent enough that I tutored French in college. Uh, now I can like read it and kind of get along, but not so much. It's mostly been replaced by Japanese. I tried to study Korean. I can still kind of read Hangul, but I don't actually know any grammar or anything like that. I could just read the sounds in the alphabet. Uh, I studied Mandarin for a little bit using Duolingo. I think I can maybe still say like one sentence in Mandarin. And then I tried at one point to study Cantonese, but there just weren't enough resources for that. So I ended up dropping it. So right now, really, I just can confidently say that I speak Japanese and English. And so how strong is your Japanese? Sometimes it's a hard question to answer, I find, for people, but how would you describe your, your Japanese level? So we have a, a an, an ability test called the JLPT, which stands for the Japanese Language Ability Test, I think literally is what it stands for. And back in 2019, I passed the N4, which is the second lowest level. In 2020, I was prepared to and supposed to take the N3, but due to the pandemic, it was canceled. And then this year, during December, I will be taking the N2, which is the second highest level. Um, and it's like a high school level of Japanese, kind of, in terms of kanji and complexity of sentence structure. Uh, but I will say that because I didn't have a lot of friends or a large Japanese community where I come from, I don't have a lot of speaking practice. So actually my written and read Japanese is much stronger than my spoken and heard Japanese. So for example, 
I can kind of understand the documents about my car insurance, but I don't understand, I can't watch television really. Regular conversational Japanese is quite difficult for me, but more technical stuff I can understand. So yeah, it is a little bit of a difficult question to answer. I've heard, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, I've heard that the JLPT test, how do I say this? Okay, so you, you did French for seven years. Do you know what the, the like the DELF exam is for French? No idea. No, or like, do you know like of the, like the European system for tracking fluency, like the A1, A2, B1, B2, no? Yes, so I do actually know that one. Um, and I only know that from a college linguistics class. So I know the terms and like vaguely what they are, but. Okay, so, well, we, that, that'll help. So, okay, so the European system for, for measuring languages, if you take like a French, the French equivalent of the JLPT, you're going to have, you know, you have six different levels. And on every exam, you have uh, listening, uh, reading comprehension, a writing, like you'll have to write like, the higher the level, the more you have to write, of course, but like the highest level, you end up writing like a 2000 word essay, essentially. Um, so speaking, uh, sorry, listening, reading comprehension, writing and speaking. And it's just four different parts. So if someone were to pass like a B2, which would be like the fourth, one, two, one, two, yeah, like the fourth level, you very likely actually have that kind of level in all four skills, reading, writing, speaking, and listening. And it actually, you very likely actually have that level. So someone has a B2 certificate, uh, you like, so it's B2 is like upper intermediate is what they call it. You very likely actually have an upper intermediate level, very likely. You might be a little bit stronger in certain skills, a little bit weaker in other skills. Of course, there's some variation, but you, you, will, you, will, you will likely have a hard time getting a good mark on the test, getting your certificate and not having at least close to a B2 level. Whereas from what I've heard on the JLPT, it doesn't test your speaking, is that right? Correct. Yeah, it doesn't test your speaking. I've also heard that a lot of the test questions are very test-like and they're not actually helping you. They're not, you're not applying your reading or your writing knowledge. Is that also right? Yes. So someone could pass like a JLPT test, like they could pass a level three, for example, but maybe they're actually not really that good at Japanese in any kind of practical situation. Uh, yes. For the podcast and people, is... point, Sydney's pointing at herself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is pretty much exactly the situation that I'm in. Um, my testable Japanese is fairly impressively high um, for, for the casualness with which I have studied Japanese. But in practical situations, I still struggle quite a lot. So yes, that's very true. The JLPT really only tests your reading comprehension and then kind of like rote knowledge of vocabulary and ability to recognize kanji and things like that kind of. Um, so in terms of like being able to live regular daily life, read a novel, watch television, um, the JLPT is not a great example of your abilities. However, if someone wants to work in a Japanese corporation as a foreigner, having a high JLPT level is very much respected. Um, so it's still kind of like a necessary evil, even though it doesn't actually measure your practical Japanese skills all that well. So you're saying before we started recording that you did a whole bunch of things to learn Japanese. You had Wani Kani, you did uh, Duolingo, you took, you know, classes, like group classes, private classes, 
self-study with textbooks like you mentioned a whole uh, i live in a language learning world so i talked to a lot of language learners you kind of did a lot of the things that language learners would do and you've done it for five years is that right yep five years okay and now and now obviously you're more kind of immersed in japan obviously um so uh two-part question so part one is looking back at how you've learned and you know is there anything you would change now that you know you know you have the benefit of hindsight and then part two seeing as now you're saying you you lack some of the practical japanese skills how are you working on those now so it's a two-part question but actually the answer is kind of the same uh i was really passionate about learning the language but i isolated myself um, i was too shy to make mistakes I was really afraid to put myself out there with the little bit of Japanese that I did know. I didn't attempt at all to interact with like an online community that spoke Japanese or anything throughout almost all of that time. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of opportunities to learn the Japanese that Japanese people are using every day. Um, a benefit and a problem from that is that now, sometimes I help my Japanese coworkers with reading kanji because kanji was something that was super easy to learn by myself. Uh, however, I can't talk to my students. I wish that I had put myself more out there. I wish that I had taken more like classes with native Japanese speakers, because sometimes even the people that were teaching me were not native Japanese speakers because I was too shy and too afraid to mess up my Japanese with a Japanese person. I always felt like, oh, well, at least if it's an American teaching me, or someone that's maybe half American and half Japanese, they understand where I'm coming from and they totally understand that I'm, that I'm not stupid, I just don't know. But I was always so afraid of looking stupid in front of actual Japanese people that I would never try. And so now that I live here, I don't have any other option but to go out there with what I got and just do my best. Um, so, so that is what I do and that's how I'm improving. It's still there are embarrassing moments but I am able now after all this time to like actually try and practically learn Japanese rather than just keeping my nose in a textbook. So basically now you're just, you're learning by talking with people in like in the wild, quote unquote. Yes, in the wild. Honestly, my favorite thing about my job is that when my students are learning English, I'm learning Japanese because my head English teachers are explaining English grammar points to my students in Japanese. And I, almost every class, I'm like, oh my gosh. So that's how you use that. That's what that means. And they have conversation practice in English and inevitably they'll struggle and they dip back into Japanese to explain whatever the other student was trying to say. And as a teacher, I'm walking around and I can pick up on these things. So my greatest source of learning now is other people that are learning other languages it's amazing it's a crazy experience and do you have and how much of how would i word this um how much practice do you do by having casual conversations and just hanging either hanging out or just having casual conversations with other japanese adults and maybe in a lesson situation, maybe it's like a private class and it's like a very conversational class, or maybe just more like a friend that you guys go out to like hike or like have coffee or 
what whatever or like eat sushi or <laughs> and like hang out and just chit chat like how much of that do you end up getting maybe i wouldn't go so far as to say like oh i spend two or three hours a day just talking casually in japanese but i do for the most part live my regular life in japanese so i have japanese friends and we converse in japanese and i struggle a little bit but we can be we are fluent enough in their English and my Japanese between the two of us that we can have rapport and we get along well in Japanese. Uh, but just for example, being at the grocery store, everybody I have to interact with, that's all in Japanese. Talking to my other teachers, if I need something for them, if I have documents, all of that is in Japanese. So other than the time that I am at home, I'm speaking Japanese and having conversation practice and picking up new words that maybe I didn't know, but are used all the time. Got it. I see. Okay. Interesting. That's very, very cool. Yeah, it's funny because I'm, uh, I'm curious to see how your Japanese evolves. Because you've been there for a month, you said, right? Since March? Or I guess that's two months then. Yep, since March. Yeah. Okay, so two months, essentially. Almost, almost three, actually. We're almost in June. So um, I'm very curious to see how your Japanese evolves because um i'll give you like an example um you know i live in calgary which is in canada and we have quite a few people that are from different countries immigrants and a lot of the immigrants you know they will learn they will learn english by have having done some study some form of formal study back in their home country and with varying uh success let's say <laughs> then they come here and they have no choice but to learn so they might take some classes here we have free esl classes in lots of different places that are offered you might go to those classes but a lot of the people primarily learn by being here and talking to people and going to work and so what happens is that they have a end up with a very strong or at least a reasonably strong level of conversational english to go to work and things of that nature but in reality if you were to look at their writing or actually look at their grammar and things of that nature, or really even just look at their vocabulary even, they're actually not that, they have a lot of gaps, let's say, right? And so I'm very curious to see for you how that goes up because you have such a strong foundation, let's call it, with your kanji and your studying and, and, and taking the GLP, or, uh, studying for the JLPT and using your textbooks and, and using that more, uh, academic, let's call it, like academic way of studying. And now you're going about doing this more casual day to day. I'm curious, first of all, to see how your Japanese evolves. And I'm also curious to see, I'm very curious if you're going to hit a plateau. I don't know if you will, because I, uh, one thing I've seen as well is people who they end up having this um, great level to kind of get by, not even get by, comfortably handle their day to day interactions, but they don't, but they can't really take a conversation very far or they can't. Uh, really talk about something in depth or if they go watch a movie or tv show they understand enough to maybe enjoy the movie but there's a lot that gets missed so i'm just curious i'm just very curious to see how your how your your japanese evolves because sounds like you're at a phase where you're 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 getting used to like the day-to-day -day conversations and i'm curious what will come i'm just curious what will come next so really cool to see yeah so you mentioned the plateau um my Japanese level is considered to be, at least by like my aptitude tests and stuff that they had to take to, for the Japanese class I take now at our community center, is a B to A1 level in terms of like academic Japanese, whatever that means. 
B2A, what is it, B2 what? It's, it's considered in between B2 and A1, I think. Like my like textbook a, says A1 like to B2. Oh, interesting, I wonder what that means, because A1, B2. Hmm. They're not using the European system then, because an A2 is like lower than a B2 in the European system. Hmm, okay. I have no idea. <laughs> but anyway, so in terms of whatever system they're using, it's an upper intermediate kind of thing, I guess, whatever that is. Um, and so we talk about hitting the intermediate plateau, which is kind of where I have been for like a year and a half. Like I pick up new things, but they're close enough to something that I already know that I end up not using them very much. Um, and so it, to that effect, hearing the words that, so here's a great example, um, and I apologize that I'm gonna use a little bit of Japanese in this, but I'll try to explain. So I was talking to my students and I, we were trying to explain that you need to use a capital letter for place, for proper noun place names. And so I said, tokoro no namae wa omoji, which literally in English translates to the name of a place is big letters. <laughs> um, and all of my students with tokoro, tokoro, nani, tokoro. So tokoro is place, um, but it's like a place in your house. This is a good place to do whatever. It's place in a very general sense. Um, and apparently it's not really used to talk about a particular city or a particular restaurant or something. That word would be basho. And so that is something that I would have never known if I didn't have Oh no. I think Sydney is frozen. But Oh, you froze oh, no. for a sec, Sydney. That's the uh, last thing you heard is that's oh, no. not something you would have known. And then you froze. Ah. Uh, sorry. That's not something I would have known without having a classroom of 20 students making fun of me about it. Um so I'm starting to be able to get over some of those plateau things from real usage which is nice that's good yeah something you may want to possibly consider at some point uh it's been it's helpful for me personally when i have like an upper intermediate level um and i've seen it helpful for a lot of other inter upper intermediate students as well is if you were to take um oh and you have to head out in a few minutes right yeah it's okay we'll, 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 we'll wrap it up after this I have about 15 minutes, so you're... Okay, okay. We'll, we'll finish well before that then. Um, I've seen it work for myself personally, and then I've also seen it work for other, other students too, is where they end up taking a... You end up taking a, a private... You have to be private very likely. If you, if you really have an upper intermediate level, it would likely just be private or maybe small group with someone who's also very, like, very high, possibly. And then what you end up doing is it's basically an advanced conversation class. So it's not, it's, it's you, you, you read something or you watch something about, well, really any topic, but it can't, it can't be for learners. It has to be for native speakers. So maybe it's like a two minute news clip. Maybe it's uh, something interesting that happened the other day. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's something about education. Maybe it's something about the arts. It's about whatever it is, any kind of topic where there's guaranteed to be new words you don't know, guaranteed to be things that if it's a video that you're like, oh, I didn't quite understand that. So the first, what you do is with your tutor, you would go through like, what are the new words? What's going on? Like, make sure you understand it. 
that might take half a lesson or a lesson or whatever it is. Um, and then you actually have a class where you're discussing whatever that topic is. So it's like an advanced, like an advanced conversation class. Might be something you might want to consider in the future. I've done it. I've done that for uh, when I was in Taiwan in 2019. My friend and I, who I met in China, uh, which as a random tangent, we met in China, and by coincidence, we ended up booking very similar. Uh, dates to Taiwan in 2019 and we were like wait you're going there she's like yeah, I'm going there and she asked me you're going there I was like yeah I'm going there when are you going May whatever me too no way why are you going to learn Mandarin me too have you signed up for classes yet no I haven't I haven't either do you want to do it together okay and so anyway so we ended up signing for classes and that's what our class was so we had um, we would go to class and our, our was me, her, and then a tutor and the tutor would prepare whatever readings or videos would be different every time. Then we would talk about some really hard things. Like we talked about, I'm trying to remember now, it was a few years back. We would talk, I remember we had one class about women's rights because my, um, my friend was really, was, um, doing her PhD and I, I can't remember what the connection was, but there's some kind of connection to what she was in her PhD. And so we, we picked something on that. So we would like, we, we read something which is very difficult to read because both of us are lacking the vocabulary for that, especially because it's all characters. So you gotta know the characters for it. So you're like, you don't know half the characters. Um, and then we talk about it and she asks us questions about it. We discuss it. And it was like really, really good to kind of push past that upper intermediate and go more into advanced. Sometimes any more casual topics wouldn't be so serious as women's rights, but even something like, um, God, even if you're talking about, uh, like, if you like sports, if you like sports, like, it's a very day-to-day -day thing, but, like, I've had that issue. I remember in 2019, I had that issue with sports. Like, the homestay family I was with, I was teaching English to the kids, and the son really liked basketball and stuff, so he'd want to play with me. So we'd play, we'd play sports, and I was like, I don't know how to say shoot and score and goals and sidelines and out. Like, oh, my God, I don't know any of these words, and this is something that every like an eight-year-old is going to know those words in, in, in the language, right? Like these are all very common words, but that would come out in a conversation class. If that's an interest of yours to talk about sports, because you're like, oh my God, I don't know how to say these things, but you learn them. So it might be something you, might be something to consider trying. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a good idea. So I will ask, um, I feel like I revealed fairly early on that I live kind of in the countryside. Um, do you have any experiences with like you're out you're trying to learn a language and you're out in the countryside and people that know how to teach a language and have that maybe linguistics foundation or a teaching foundation have you ever struggled with finding people that know how to teach you yes often yeah, yeah it's a big challenge but the, the the thing I've now found is I've solved it in a few ways one is I just hire someone online like I'll look for someone online and I'll find someone online that is able to teach me I'll do that just kind of get around the whole issue of there's no one around me and then so what I'll do is throughout the day when I talk to people and there's stuff that I kind of understood what they said and we went we went we, we ended up moving forward in the conversation but in the end I'm still thinking like I still don't know why she said it like that I'm not sure why he said that that way or I, I know I said that wrong and he kind of nodded but I don't really know what I would have done differently and then I'll have on my phone I'll just kind of like make a little note like what was that and then I ask all those questions to like a teacher that could explain that that's something mm -hmm. I've done to get around it. Um, I've also done it where I'll take, I, I, I often, I often solve problems through private lessons is one I'll do, but I'll hire different tutors and I ask them all the same question. 
and you get different answers and you can kind oh, of piece wow. the answer together. Um, or I'll do it with my friends too, not okay. even always tutors. I'll do it with friends. I'll ask each of my friends, like for Mandarin, I'll do this sometimes. So I have a really hard question because I'm reasonably strong in Mandarin now. So I got like more difficult questions sometimes. Oh, Gujarati. Oh, Gujarati, I have to do it all the time because there's no resources for that. Like no one knows any answers. So the only way to get the answer, like no one knows. That, that just, no one ever knows. And then you got so many dialects. So, so the only way I get answers now is I ask like 15 people the same question and I look at all their answers and I go, oh, there seems to be this common thread. I think I'm starting to see what it is. And then I'll like use it. I'll, I'll test my theory. I'll use it with people and I'll watch their reaction. And then I'll ask them like, did that sound okay? They'll go, yeah, it did. Or some go like, mm, not really. And I'll go, oh, I'm, I haven't fully got it. So that's what I do for, for like a language like Japanese. I'd probably just hire someone online if it were me. It's way easier than asking people and trying to piece it together. I'll just hire someone online. There's lots of people that'll be able to help you with that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> and then it's like, as the day goes on, like kind of make a little note of things that you didn't quite understand or things you want clarification. That's what I would personally do. Sounds like a good strategy. I guess I will say I'm spoiled that I probably don't have to order, like have anybody online. I'll just be like, hey, hey, hey. Uh, does that make sense? And they'll be like, no. <laughs> so at least I do get that. Uh, I don't know if I if I tried to pick up Chinese again, though, I might be in that situation of relying on, on the internet, so. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we can wrap up there. Any, any parting thoughts? Um, so you mentioned something earlier about kind of how having a little bit of a background in linguistics and how second language acquisition works can be really helpful for learning. I just want to speak to that in that I think that's really true. Um, I find that I learn far more effectively knowing how to identify what's a verb, what is a, you know, causative version of that verb, it's, we have so many particles in Japanese, for example, that knowing what's a direct object and what is a transitive and intransitive verb, things like that make a big difference. And those are questions that I can ask a native Japanese speaker who just understands because they grew up with it. And they're not really able to give me that kind of detail in order for me to understand the language. But knowing that makes it easier to parse a difficult sentence in, in a book. Um, it makes it easier to, if I have the subtitles on in Japanese, watching something Japanese, to figure out, okay, here was the goal of that sentence, even if maybe I didn't get every word. Um, and so just as far as language learners go, especially adult language learners who do have the kind of mental, like you can, you can learn the terms, I don't think it's a waste of time to go through and actually learn things like that. Um, practice your sentence structures, practice knowing how to say verb, how to say noun in your target language. Like, Doshi is verb, meishi um, in Japanese is noun. And knowing that I can look that up in a dictionary helps so much. So I think that would just be like my little baby piece of advice to language learners. Cool. Well, let's wrap that up there. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I'll stop this recording. Everyone, thank you for listening to the podcast.